Hello, this is Aaron from The Saucer Life with a new feature. This is something that I've wanted to do for a very long time, and that is revisit some of the episodes that I did in the early days of the podcast that were not bad. I mean, I, I think everything is is good that I've done, or at least it's it's good-ish, but that are a little short. I was still sort of finding my feet and not sure of a ideal amount of depth to go into and and you know not having the resources that I I have now. It was, you know, difficult to uh, go as in-depth as maybe I should have. And I've been wanting to do this for a long time. And as I'm working on new material for the show to finish out the year, uh, because we're already near the end of the year, I realized that uh, while I'm doing that and juggling massive amounts of actual things going on in real life, that this would be the ideal time to do it. So this is the first of our Rewind and Revisit episodes, and it is going to look back at our episode on the Robertson panel from way back in January 2028, more than five and a half years ago, nearly six years ago, a few months shy of six years ago. So this was a very short 23-minute episode. So that's going to be encapsulated or surrounded by this uh, this material, this introduction, and, and some some fun stuff at the end that kind of enlarges uh, our understanding of the impact the Robertson panel has had and, and the way it was portrayed in the media uh, from the 1960s onward. And um, I, I, I I mean yes, it's kind of a rerun, but also a little fun, I think, and I hope so. Enjoy the Robertson panel and stay tuned through the end of it for more Robertson panel. This is the saucer life exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The saucer life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no influence by intelligence agencies. This is Encounter 305, the Robertson panel. This week, we're going to be looking at one of the earliest examples, documented examples anyway, of the U.S. intelligence establishment taking an active interest in the flying saucer scene. We've seen some examples of the FBI getting involved. We've talked about the Air Force getting involved uh, from the military side of things. But the Robertson panel, as it would become known, is something a little bit different and has some long-reaching consequences that are uh, fairly significant for the study of flying saucer uh, culture over the last 60 or 70 years. So here we go with the Robertson panel. Increased flying saucer sightings, especially by 1952, led to increased government and scrutiny of the flying saucer mystery. The summer of 1952 overwhelmed Project Blue Book with sightings from all over the country, including a so-called saucer flyover of Washington, D.C., which radar operators were powerless to explain. As mysterious lights flashed in the night over the Pentagon, White House, and Capitol Hill, the Air Force scrambled fighters to intercept. By the time the planes were airborne, the lights had disappeared from the skies and the radar screens. This incident convinced many in the government that whatever was going on was vital to determine whether or not there existed a threat to national security. 
by early 1953, one of the newest governmental creations of the Cold War, would try its hand at understanding the situation. From January 14th to the 17th, 1953, the Central Intelligence Agency convened the Scientific Panel on Unidentified Flying Objects, chaired by physicist E.P. Robertson of Caltech. The most complete version of the proceedings of their meetings is linked in the show notes, but here are some highlights. One of the things the panel looked at was the Air Force and Blue Book procedure for taking reports and investigating them and the trouble that arose from that system. It was the panel's opinion that some of the Air Force concern over UFOs, notwithstanding Air Defense Command anxiety over fast radar tracks, was probably caused by public pressure. The result today is that the Air Force has instituted a fine channel for receiving reports of nearly anything anyone sees in the sky and fails to understand. This has been particularly encouraged in popular articles on this and other subjects, such as space travel and science fiction. The result is the mass receipt of low-grade reports which tend to overload channels of communication with material quite irrelevant to hostile objects that might someday appear. The panel agreed generally that this mass of poor quality reports containing little, if any, scientific data was of no value. Quite the opposite. It was possibly dangerous in having a military service foster public concern in, quote, nocturnal meandering lights. The implication being, since the interested agency was the military, that these objects were, or might be, potential direct threats to national security. Accordingly, the need for de-emphasization made itself apparent. It was also interesting to me that the panel seemed to have a fairly open mind about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. It was interesting to note that none of the members of the panel were loath to accept that the Earth might be visited by extraterrestrial intelligent beings of some sort someday. What they did not find was any evidence that related the objects sighted to space travelers. Terrestrial explanations of many sightings were suggested in some cases, and in others, the time of the sighting was so short as to cause suspicion of visual impressions. It was noted that extraterrestrial artifacts, if they did exist, are no cause for alarm. Rather, they are in the realm of natural phenomenon, subject to scientific study, just as cosmic rays were at the time of their discovery 20 to 30 years ago. This was an attitude in which Dr. Robertson did not concur, as he felt that such artifacts would be of immediate and great concern not only to the U.S., but to all countries. Nothing like a common threat to unite peoples. So one of the problems cited by the panel here is is a lack of documentation accompanying many sightings and a lack of evidence. Basically, unexplained does not actually mean unexplainable. Not necessarily, anyway. The effort required to exhaustively investigate everything was daunting, to say the least. The panel noted that the cost in technical manpower effort required to follow up and explain every one of the thousand or more reports received through channels each year could not be justified. It was felt that there will always be sightings for which complete data is lacking that can only be explained with disproportionate effort and with a long time delay, if at all. The long delay in explaining a sighting tends to eliminate any intelligence value. The education or training program should have as a major purpose the elimination of popular feeling that every sighting, no matter how poor the data, must be explained in detail. Attention should be directed to the requirement among scientists that a new phenomenon to be accepted must be completely and convincingly documented. In other words, the burden of proof is on the cider, not the explainer. But what about 
the main point of the panel, that assessing the dangers of flying saucers. The panel felt that while there was no direct danger, that is, these lights in the sky were not going to you know, blow up the White House Independence Day style or anything, there were related dangers that might exist. These dangers included three key things. First is, these are the words from the report, misidentification of actual enemy artifacts by defense personnel. Oh, what's that, Jimmy? Well, Phil, I think it's one of those flying saucers, so probably nothing. Oh, no, it's a ballistic missile coming at you. That that sort of thing. Um, the second one is, uh, in the words of the report, an overloading of emergency reporting channels with false information. Yeah, that sort of makes sense. And third, quote, subjectivity of public to mass hysteria and greater vulnerability to possible enemy psychological warfare. So that third one is is one of the most interesting to me because the danger of UFOs is not the UFOs themselves, in a way. The danger is that this UFO thing might be used as a propaganda weapon for some other purpose. That's an interesting angle that the CIA chose to pursue a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Uh, and, and that uh, leads to the education program portion of the Robertson panel report. And this is one of the most talked about parts of the report. In fact, when people mention the Robertson panel report in a lot of UFO books, this education program section is, is usually what gets nearly all the attention. The panel's concept of a broad educational program integrating efforts of all concerned agencies was that it should have two major aims, training and debunking. The training aim would result in proper recognition of unusually illuminated objects such as balloons or aircraft reflections, as well as natural phenomena, meteors, fireballs, mirages, noctilucent clouds. The debunking aim would result in reduction in public interest in flying saucers, which today evokes a strong psychological reaction. This education could be accomplished by mass media such as television, motion pictures, and popular articles. Basis of such education would be actual case histories, which had been puzzling at first, but later explained. As in the case of conjuring tricks, there is much less stimulation if the secret is known. Such a program should tend to reduce the current gullibility of the public, and consequently their susceptibility to clever hostile propaganda. The panel noted that the general absence of Russian propaganda, based on a subject with so many obvious possibilities for exploitation, might indicate a possible Russian official policy. Members of the panel had various suggestions related to the planning of such an educational program. It was strongly felt that psychologists familiar with mass psychology should advise on the nature and extent of the program. The teaching techniques used by this agency for aircraft identifications during the past war was cited as an example of a similar educational task. The Jam Handy Company, which made World War II training films, was also suggested, as was Walt Disney animated cartoons. Dr. Hynek suggested that the amateur astronomers in the U.S. might be a potential source of enthusiastic talent to spread the gospel. It was believed that business clubs, high schools, colleges, and television stations would all be pleased to cooperate in the showing of documentary-type motion pictures if prepared in an interesting manner. The use of true cases showing first the mystery and then the explanation would be forceful. The education part 
of this is a little bit chilling, really, isn't it? Now, training Air Force officials and Air Force personnel to adequately explain or adequately identify natural phenomenon that might otherwise be confused for flying saucers, that makes sense. But the debunking aspect, the idea of um, you know, these guys sitting around and saying, well, why don't we just you know hire Jam Handy to make some educational shorts or Walt Disney to make a cartoon and get people to stop talking about this? It sounds you know sort of creepily chilling now. In 1952, given the political climate, the social climate of the United States, maybe not so much. After all, we just seven years before had finished up the Second World War, which involved a great deal of mass media used to manipulate public opinion about the war, about politicians, about America in general. And then we get into the Cold War, where you have mass media manipulation from a variety of sources to sort of develop American citizens' sense of devotion, not just to the country, but to sort of abstract concepts of capitalism as well. So it seems a bit shocking now to read this, but in 1952, one might sort of think this was sort of standard operating procedure. Well, we need to get the public to think this way, you know, let's get some film strips and show them to the kids and kids will talk to their parents and everything will be fine. And pretty soon we'll make the whole flying saucer thing go away. The panel's conclusions presented um, on January 17th were concise, but had some significant stuff in them. Pursuant to the request of the Assistant Director for Scientific Intelligence, the undersigned panel of scientific consultants has met to evaluate any possible threat to national security posed by unidentified flying objects or flying saucers and to make recommendations thereon. The panel has received the evidence as presented by cognizant intelligence agencies, primarily the Air Technical Intelligence Center, and has reviewed a selection of the best documented incidents. As a result of its considerations, the panel concludes that the evidence presented on unidentified flying objects shows no indication that these phenomena constitute a direct physical threat to national security. We firmly believe there is no residuum of cases which indicates phenomena which are attributable to foreign artifacts capable of hostile acts, and that there is no evidence that the phenomena indicates a need for revision of current scientific concepts. The panel further concludes that the continued emphasis on the reporting of these phenomena does, in these parlous times, result in a threat to the orderly functioning of the protective organs of the body politic. We cite as examples the clogging of channels of communication by irrelevant reports, the danger of being led by continued false alarms to ignore real indications of hostile action, and the cultivation of a morbid national psychology in which skillful, hostile propaganda could induce hysterical behavior and harmful distrust of duly constituted authority. In order to most effectively strengthen the national facilities for the timely recognition and the appropriate handling of true indications of hostile action, and to minimize the concomitant dangers alluded to above, the panel recommends A that the national security agencies take immediate steps to strip unidentified flying objects of the special status they have been given and the aura of mystery they have unfortunately acquired. B. 
that the national security agencies institute policies on intelligence, training, and public education designed to prepare the material defenses and the morale of the country to recognize most promptly and to react most effectively to true indications of hostile intent or action. We suggest that these aims may be achieved by an integrated program designed to reassure the public of the total lack of evidence of inimical forces behind the phenomenon, to train personnel to recognize and reject false indications quickly and effectively, and to strengthen regular channels for the evaluation of, and prompt reaction to, true indications of hostile measures. In a January 20th letter to H. Marshall Chadwell, Assistant Director of the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence, Robertson quipped, quote, perhaps that'll take care of the Fortians for a while, end quote. The existence of the Robertson panel and its findings, though initially classified and not reported to the public, would be revealed, sort of, a few years later. The Air Force requested that the report's conclusions be made public. In an undated, as far as I can tell, letter from CIA Deputy Assistant Director Philip Strong to panel member Thornton Page, we get a little bit of insight into the thinking that went into what would be declassified. I've discussed this matter with Dr. Robertson, who agrees that the conclusion contained in paragraph 2 and the recommendation contained in paragraph 4a can be declassified. But he, as well as this agency, will not agree to a declassification of the conclusion in paragraph 3 or the recommendation in paragraph 4b. It is our feeling that the association of the panel with this agency should not be disclosed, that paragraph 1 should be rewritten, and that the final six lines of paragraph 4 can remain as written. Here's a sample of the sanitized version of the conclusions. The undersigned panel of scientific consultants has met at the request of the government to evaluate any possible threat to national security posed by unidentified flying objects or flying saucers and to make recommendations. The panel has received this evidence as presented by cognizant government agencies, primarily the United States Air Force, and has reviewed a selection of the best documented incidents. So a particular branch of the Central Intelligence Agency becomes the government. The Air Technical Intelligence Center becomes the U.S. Air Force. So that's one of the changes, the introduction that, that sort of removes the CIA from the picture, which, which makes sense. If I was the CIA, I would not want to have my name out there doing things as well. Other specific things that were eliminated include the section that, um, that says national security agencies should institute policies on intelligence training and public education, that uh, we training personnel to reject false indications and to strengthen regular channels, really sort of cleans things up. They eliminate a lot of the education stuff. They don't talk about, you know, having to, to cleanse the public of any sort of, you know, knowledge of flying saucers and that, that the flying saucers debate is damaging to the body politic. The, the strongest the language gets in the, in the sanitized version of the report is to strip UFOs from the special value they've been given and the aura of mystery they've unfortunately acquired. The sanitized report conclusions don't say, and we're going to do, use the Disney Corporation to do it. So it's, it's a little more, I don't want to say cuddly, but it's, it's a little more cuddly. 
So these sanitized findings and and knowledge of this panel itself were probably first noted in a book called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, a 1956 book by Edward Ruppelt, who headed Project Blue Book in its earliest years. He describes the panel this way. By early January 1953, the scientists who were to be members of our panel of experts had been contacted and had agreed to sit in judgment of the UFO. In turn, we agreed to give them every detail about the UFOs. We had our best reports for them to read, and we were going to show them the two movies that that some intelligence officers considered as the positive proof. Because of military regulations, the names of the panel members, like the names of so many other people associated with the UFO story, cannot be revealed. No mention of the CIA, no names given. I'm a dork. Yeah, but it's kind of fun to see the CIA memos about what can be talked about and not talked about, and then to see concrete examples of how those determinations play out in a book that is released to the general public. I just think that's really cool. So the Robertson panel, in all, was was significant for two reasons. First, it helped establish that the government saw flying saucers as a threat, not because they were invading craft from outer space, but because the public's perception of them could derail government efforts to convince Americans that, for example, the Soviet Union was the greatest threat imaginable. Remember Dr. Uh, Robertson's comment that the uh, that the um, that the report cited that you know this could bring everybody together, all nations, all peoples would come together because of this external threat. Second and more far-reaching was the effect that the full Robertson panel findings had on flying saucer believers when its existence was eventually released to the public. Uh, Some bits came out in the 70s, other bits are still coming out. To many saucer believers, the report confirmed that the government had much stronger interest in the topic than it ever indicated. And that suspicion persists through today, as recent news indicates. Knowledge of the scrutiny given to the question of flying saucers by the military and intelligence organs of the U.S. government, fueled believers' desire for governmental disclosure of any UFO information they might have had and reinforced the notion that the government was being unduly secretive about the topic. Indeed, bits and pieces of the panel's findings were still being declassified in the early 2000s, and some things are still redacted. Knowledge of the education program, in particular, has fueled a re-examination of saucer-related media from the time, media that may have been used as a vehicle for the demystification of the subject so desired by the panel. Robbie Graham's 2015 book, Silver Screen Saucers, Sorting Fact from Fiction, sorry, Sorting Fact from Fantasy, in Hollywood's UFO movies, discusses the influence of the panel's findings. Graham explains, for example, that a 19, even as late as 1966, a, a CBS sort of anti-UFO documentary hosted by Walter Cronkite was um, advised by one of the members of the Robertson panel, Dr. Thornton Page. And Page made a reference to, to somebody that, that he tried to push the program makers into the in in the direction desired by the Robertson panel. So 13 years later, it's still having an influence. And we have documentation that people involved did did carry out this goal. It would be naive of us to think that government influence of the media was limited to flying saucers. Shows like Dragnet, for example, 
serve as evidence that the federal government is fully willing to use mass media to promote its agenda, and that the mass media is at least sometimes willing to serve as the handmaiden of propaganda. I don't think that's a paranoid point of view. I think it's a realistic one, as long as we don't get carried away and assume everything is some sort of secret propaganda. Honestly, only like 98% of stuff is secret propaganda. Okay, I'm the only non-propaganda thing you will hear this week. I absolutely promise you. The work of the Robertson panel is a little bit of information that we should keep in our heads as we make our way through our own saucer lives. If you like the Saucer Life and want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. Patrons over at the Saucer Life Patreon uh, get the episodes before everybody else, and there are some bonus po- content that arrives every month. So if you're interested, you can check it out at patreon.com slash chizomedia or via the link in the show notes. You can check out past episodes at saucerlife.com or your favorite podcast app. And as always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life. You can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by post at Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. When looking for additional things to say about the Robertson panel, one of the things I was drawn to is how the Robertson panel might have shown up in newspapers, mentions of the Robertson panel, after, of course, it was written. And I found some interesting stories going all the way back to 1968. And the first one of these is from the Allentown, Pennsylvania Morning Call on Sunday, May 19th, 1968. And the headline is, Must We Turn to Russia to Solve UFO Riddle? X Valley Buff Asks. And this article is by a George W. Fawcett. According to the newspaper introduction, uh, Fawcett is a flying saucer buff who organized the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, two-state UFO study group, whereupon afterwards he moved to Florida, where he is executive director of the YMCA in DeLand, Florida. Now, I was interested in who George W. Fawcett was, so I, I did some looking. There is a an article in uh, an Associated Press article that I found in the Los Angeles Times back in May of 1985, and it's a profile of George Fawcett, who whose interest in UFOs spanned 40 years, according to the headlines. In the story, we hear about how George Fawcett, when he was 15 years old in 1944, read a news story about quote silver balls floating in the air. The Nazis apparently planned to use to confuse and frightened allies during bombing raids, end quote. This is, of course, about sort of the Foo Fighter sort of thing. And, and this set Fawcett off on his, his quest to learn more about UFOs. According to this news story, uh, Fawcett by 1985 had spent $27,000 of his own money and been sort of passed over for a job he wanted because of UFOs. He is investigated by 1985 over a thousand UFO sightings and had 20 filing cabinet drawers filled with UFO documents. Fawcett described himself as as not the Billy Graham of UFOs, more like the curious George of UFOs, which um 
I like. I, I like that. Uh, I like that analogy. Um, in Lincolnton, North, uh, North Carolina, where he was living by the mid 1980s, his wife owned a sandwich shop, which had a UFO room full of pictures and newspaper clippings about UFOs. By 1985, Fawcett was the PR director for the North Carolina MUFON chapter, and um, he had been up until this year, until 1985, been providing an annual report of North Carolina UFO activity on sort of an, an annual an annual basis. Fawcett died in 2013 at the age of 83, and according to his obituary. Fawcett was um, known as the UFO man around Lincolnton, North Carolina. He had been studying UFOs for 65 years and written articles for Argosy, True Magazine, Flying Saucer Review. He taught a UFO course at Gaston College. And by the time of his death, his number of cases investigated was up to over 1,200. His collection of Sauceriana um, was uh, – not valued, but counted at over 20,000 items. And he had donated that to the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, New Mexico, which if, if you ever get out to Roswell, I urge you to check that out. No, no matter what you feel about Roswell, it's a neat thing. It's a neat thing to see. Um, so who was George Fawcett as just a person? He was a, a former teacher in the Randolph County Schools, an environmental educator at uh, the North Carolina Zoo. Um, he was not just a UFO guy, a uh, member of St. Luke's Episcopal Church, sang in the choir. Um, he, the Various people that they talked to in this obituary article from local officials and, and people who work in the the historical office there in the county, everybody seemed to like him. In fact, one person said, I never met anyone who didn't like him. Um, he had seen one UFO in his life in 1951. He was on the campus of Lynchburg College in Virginia. He was a student there. He saw something in the sky 30 feet in diameter that looked like an orange that had been cut in half. Um, so that's George Fawcett. So what did George Fawcett have to say in May of 1968? Well, a little context about this in 1968 comes from Fawcett himself as he opens the article. Last night, while America slept, the University of Colorado UFO probe fell apart literally to the power of the printed word. If you think things were bad when the CIA ordered the Air Force to debunk flying saucers in 1953, then wait until you hear what comes next. The name of the group making such a recommendation in 1953 was the Robertson Panel. So we're at the point where the Condon Committee uh, famously or infamously declared that UFOs were not of significant scientific interest or defense interest to sort of obligate the Air Force to keep looking into them. And what Fawcett does here is he ties this to the Robertson panel. And in this introduction, and this is, again, this is a newspaper in Allentown, Pennsylvania. This is not a, a UFO magazine. What Fawcett does is he sort of links it to the Robertson panel, but doesn't really explain what the Robertson panel is 
yet. Rather, he notes that a, a new expose in the recent issue of Look Magazine by John Fuller of Incident at Exeter fame and of uh, Interrupted Journey fame. Fuller wrote this article about the, in his words, flying saucer fiasco, and it's basically an investigation into the um, into the, the Condon Committee, which Fuller um, and others said was a planned deception that was designed to um, wreck the flying saucer question for good. Fuller mentioned a memo from Dr. Robert Lowe, the project coordinator, that apparently revealed the secret purpose of the Condon Committee. The memo, labeled Some Thoughts on the UFO Project, mentions that, quote, the trick would be, I think, to describe the project so that to the public, it would appear a totally objective study, but to the scientific community would present the image of a group of non-believers trying their best to be objective, but having an almost zero expectation of finding a saucer, end quote. Readers now know the conclusions ahead of time. Because of the results of this disclosure, two of the top scientific investigators, Dr. Norman Levine and Dr. David Saunders, were immediately fired by Dr. Condon. Dr. Condon, who recently suffered from a minor heart attack, then had to accept the resignation of Mrs. Mary Armstrong, Dr. Lowe's administrative assistant. Other high project officials also threatened to follow with a similar action. The university has announced, one month ahead of its final study date, that the investigations would be published, reviewed by the National Academy of Sciences, and released to the public in late December 1968, or early 1969. Fawcett goes on to exclaim, or not exclaim, that's kind of a strong word, to declare, let's say that, declare, that, quote, once again, the Condon Committee of 1968 has fallen victim to the same problem as the Robertson panel of 1953, to tell the truth or not to tell the truth. Judging from both decisions, they felt the public was not entitled to the truth, whatever the truth may be, end quote. Again, he doesn't really explain what the Robertson panel was um, just that both the Robertson panel and the Condon committee were were you know basically publicly funded scams to cover up the truth about UFOs, and so he reiterates the question from the uh, from the headline: Will we have to turn to the Russian UFO probe just recently announced to find the truth? about the UFOs. And, and Fawcett says that he hopes not. And he says because of these documented global sightings, um, that the UFO project has to be taken out of the hands of the Air Force, the University of Colorado, Congress, the CIA, etc., and, quote, placed on the agenda of the United Nations as the second, quote, second most serious problem the world faces besides the question of peace and war. I do think it's very interesting that there wasn't a lot of detail about what the Robertson report was, but as we as we heard in the uh, the sort of old episode um, earlier, it was it was not a publicly available thing for a long time, and which brings me to the second newspaper article discussing the um, the the Robertson panel that I have, and this is from a a, um, 
a syndicated column from Joan Cirillo called the Merry-Go-Round. And the, uh, the version I have, the copy I have is from the, uh, the daily item. What city? Uh, the Port Chester, New York daily item, uh, January 22nd, 1978. And this is about our old friends at an organization called Ground Saucer Watch, which would evolve into Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, who we encountered uh, earlier this year. And the organization in 1978, uh, through its uh, official Peter Gersten, uh, are going to sue the CIA. At issue is the Robertson Panel Report, the findings of a panel of scientists the CIA commissioned in 1953 to investigate UFO reports, and data on the 1952 case the group is researching. Ground Saucer Watch members believe the CIA didn't give them the original Robertson Panel Report when they requested it, and they're challenging the agency's refusal to supply further information. The CIA contends that releasing the 1952 material threatens national security, even though the Robertson panel found that UFOs weren't a threat to national security, Gersten says. So 25 years later or so, the Robertson panel is still sort of hovering around, hovering, hovering rather, around as this kind of kind of specter in the UFO world. It's it's this thing we don't might not have all of it. Uh, we might just have a summary at this point, but we know that this is the smoking gun, that there is some kind of cover-up, if not a smoking gun, for there being actual UFOs. But all of this, according to this this column, is, is sort of picking up speed because of um, President Carter, uh, who was sympathetic to the UFO cause, and he reported that he had had a UFO sighting when he was governor of Georgia. And um, there's sort of a public push for information. President Carter had reported seeing a UFO when he was governor of Georgia and remarked that he would do everything he could to make public all government information. Ufologists wanted him to keep that promise. In response, the White House requested that NASA reopen the study of UFOs, a request that NASA turned down because, they said, there is no physical UFO evidence to study. NASA, however, did agree to answer any inquiries about UFOs and offer its laboratories for research should evidence become available. A spokesman for the president contends that all information about UFOs is already public. Meanwhile, in an unrelated move in New York City, the delegation of Grenada proposed that the United Nations establish an agency to study UFOs. Prime Minister Eric M. Gary has advocated such an agency, and a special political committee of the General Assembly will be debating the proposal shortly. News stories about the Robertson panel or about UFOs that mentioned the Robertson panel, which was much more common, also benefited from some, let's say, insider uh, insider information as well. In an extensive article in the San Francisco Examiner from August 30th, 1981, J. Allen Hynek talked about the UFO phenomenon in depth, as well as government efforts to look into the um, into the situation. And he was a um, an associate member of the Robertson panel and can uh, talk about that from his point of view. The Robertson panel, composed of high-ranking and very busy scientists, spent parts of five days early in 1953 surveying the situation. It made no investigations of its own, relying solely on fragmentary examinations of cases selected by Blue Book personnel. 
The panel had been convened by the CIA, whose concern seemed not to be UFOs per se, but the possible use of UFO reports by subversive elements to clog military communications or affect the psychological stability of the public. Instead of suggesting further scientific investigation, the panel recommended that every effort be made to play down UFO reports. This is probably the the fairest and most sensible and thorough explanation of what the Robertson panel was that I've seen appear in in sort of popular media looks at what the Robertson panel is. There, there's not um, there, there's not a, a sense of of really conspiracism to it. There's not a sense of uh, a cover up because of what the UFOs were. It just recognizes that the CIA had a very specific goal in mind when it looked at the UFO question. It was about the the possibility that UFOs could be that the concept of UFOs rather could be used for dangerous and subversive purposes. Finally, in July of 2002, in a uh, a, a column by Billy Cox for his People column in the uh, Florida Today newspaper, he interviewed um, Fred Durant, who was a Navy test pilot who was involved with the Robertson panel. And uh, at the time in 2002, uh, uh, Durant was 80, uh, 85 years old. And he said that uh, he, he was fine with how everything turned out with the report. Today, from his home in Raleigh, North Carolina, the 85-year-old Durant insists he, quote, wouldn't change a word, end quote, in the Robertson panel. You have to remember the times, says Durant. These UFO reports were clogging the phone lines, and we had absolutely no idea of what the Soviet interest in this was. If this phenomenon could be controlled, they could have used it for psychological warfare. So again, it's it's a question of, of what the priorities of the people involved with the panel were. As we've seen, the CIA, the Air Force, had concerns that went beyond or not not beyond i was gonna say beyond the question of what the ufos were i don't think they ever reached the level of what the ufos were their concerns sort of topped out at what is the practical impact of all of these reports on the public and on our logistical and communication systems which is which is roughly where it would be in 1953 the question is how much of that that attitude of play down the UFOs, how deeply did that go? How wide did it spread? And did it become an institutionalized system of cover-up over the ensuing decades? Um, I don't know. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But in any case, I hope you've enjoyed this, um, this, this sort of look back at the Robertson panel and this sort of expansion on what we've done. And um, tune in. Keep tuning in. We'll be doing more of these along with, um, along with what do you call it? Uh, new material. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, new material um, as we uh, as we go, as we finish out, uh, as we finish out the year. And thanks for listening. Um, the associate producer of the Saucer Life is Simpson J Hanover the Third, and the Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. Till next time. Keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.